All right. Lesson 12, what is the heart? We're calling this one desperately wicked, incurably sick. What is the heart? Well, it is desperately wicked and incurably sick. And I think by now we've all learned that pretty quickly. If for no other reason you can tell that your heart can shift on a dime and you can go from being so excited to angry and ready to fight at a moment's notice and you think, where in the world does that come from? That's one of the reasons the heart is incurably sick. It must always be held in check. So let's look at some things in this. We have a lot of scripture to cover. And even as I concluded writing this, I, I sent it off to Miss Hannah for editing, and I realized I'd left other scriptures out that I wanted to include, and I'm just going to have to leave them out because there's a lot of scripture in the Bible on the heart, and we're not going to be able to cover all of them. We've previously established that the heart of man and the spirit of man are two different things, and that was probably a revolutionary thing to our church about 12 years ago. It will continue to be revolutionary to people that hear it who have a doctrine that says the spirit of man and the heart of man are the same thing. We've proven quite thoroughly it's impossible for the heart and the spirit to be the same thing. The spirit of the born-again man can be trusted for several reasons. Of course, the heart of this message is you can't trust your heart, but we can trust our spirit man. Here's why we can trust our spirit man. Point one, we are born again in our spirit of incorruptible seed, the word of God that lives and abides forever. So that right there shows us that our spirit is different and is completely trustworthy because it's been born again of incorruptible seed. It's born again of the Word of God. Even as our ministry's theme verses, James 1.21, receive with meekness the engrafted Word, which is able to save your soul, the word engrafted means inborn. So the engrafted or inborn Word is part of our spiritual DNA. If we will receive the DNA that's part of the born-again experience, it can save our soul, that is, our mind, our will, and our emotions. But if we don't receive it, and that's the caveat to James 1.21, written to born-again, spirit-filled believers. If you don't receive the Word of God that's already in you, you will not save your soul. And wouldn't that be a shame to have the fullness of the Godhead bodily and the Word of God dwelling in our spirit man through the new birth, and it want to burp up and speak to us, we not receive it, we totally stay the same in our soul, and nobody could ever tell we're a Christian. That really is a horrible concept, but it happens all the time to people everywhere. And that is why... It seems like our church's main theme is change, 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 change. Change not to please pastor or to please your spouse. Please Jesus. Change to be conformed to the image of Christ. And part of your born-again DNA is the blueprint of God's nature and character. So we have it within us to change. We have the ability. We even have it within us to know what it looks like. Whether we do or not is totally up to us. Point two, we've been baptized into one body, and through the new birth, we have been made to drink into the Holy Spirit. So again, our spirit man is seated in heavenly places. It's one spirit with the Spirit of God. These are spiritual truths. They were also called positional truths. Uh, our soul is a different beast altogether. Our heart is totally different. Our heart has not been made to drink of the same spirit. Point three, through the new birth, we are new creatures in Christ, and all things have become new. Of course, that's talking about spiritually. Through the new birth, we are new creatures in Christ. But we know we can be born again tomorrow if we are lost today and still think the same way the moment we got born again. The creature, the new creature is the spirit man. It's not the mind, the will, or the emotions. You can get born again in an evangelistic service and still want to go out and get drunk. You can get born again in an evangelistic service and still go home to a fornicating lifestyle. So that's not the new part. The soul is not the new part. The mind, the will, and the emotions are not the new part. It's the spirit man that is. 
Final point on this section. Our born-again spirit is the candle of the Lord searching all the inward parts of the belly. So we can trust our born-again human spirit because it is recreated in the image and likeness of God. It is a new creature in Christ. In short, we can trust the voice of our born-again spirit because the heart, though, is a manifestation of man's fickle soul. It's a different matter altogether. Uh, learning to be led by your human spirit is a whole another set of lessons. We have written those. They are on pod school. But we want to just make the distinction again. The spirit of man and the heart of man are two different things. And discipleship is what changes our heart. Spiritually, in here this morning, we're all the same. We're all born again. We're all seated in heavenly places. We're all the righteousness of God in Christ. We all have a destiny in Christ. We all have a vocation wherewith we're called. But we don't all act that way. According to the blueprint of God, we could all have the same type of beautiful marriage. We don't all have that. We could all raise our kids successfully. We haven't all done that. But the potential and the blueprint is there in us in the new birth. The difference is this, this fuse called the soul, the fuse that allows the power to flow or not flow. When, you, when your soul blows out, you disconnect the power and your whole light gun goes dim. It's like that wretched little fuse or the light bulb on the Christmas tree. Just one, one of those goes out. That whole chunk on your Christmas tree goes out. And at that point, you just throw the whole tree in the backyard and burn it. That's, that's what you do because you're not going to chase those bulbs. And Amen. The worst thing you could ever do, we did this three years ago, never do this. We bought a Christmas tree with the lights already wrapped in it. That worked great for a year. And the next year we opened it up and like the whole lower section was out. And I told Amanda, I'm not searching for it. What are you going to do? I said, I'm getting pliers and I'm cutting it out. So I spent like an hour, probably could have searched the bulb at that point, and I cut it out. So then we rewrapped it with new ones. And then the next year we opened it up. The middle section was dead. And that's when I thought, I'm just, if it would just all burn, I would burn it in, in the backyard, but it'll be a wire frame. So we just slowly every year cut lights out and wrap them with other lights. Sounds like somebody's marriage in here, I feel like. It just... Every anniversary, we open the tree, and there's a whole other set of lights that has burned out, and we just want to either burn something to the ground or cut them out of our life. <laughs> Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, incurably sick. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, the emotions even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doing. This is the theme verse. This is the principal verse to help us to understand, according to the prophet of God, by the Holy Spirit, our heart is deceitful above all things, and it is desperately wicked. It is incurably sick, which does not provide a lot of hope unless you know the Bible. So the point of this chapter, or excuse me, this lesson, is to explain why the Bible can say, even to us as New Testament, born-again, tongue-talking believers, how can our heart be desperately wicked and incurably sick? That's what we're going to prove with the rest of this lesson. We have previously proven the heart of man operates the same on both sides of Calvary. All right? The heart operates the same. Just because we come through the cross doesn't mean our heart operates any differently. Faith still operates the same. We still hear. It builds the muscle that is faith, and we believe what we hear if we hear it enough. That's how Abraham pleased God. That's how we please God. He's the father of our faith. Nothing changes on this side of Calvary. If this was the only verse we had on the heart, it would say all we need to know. Our heart is deceitful and incurably sick. How is it possible for the heart to be capable of pleasing God, yet still be described as deceitful? 
That's what we're going to look at. Just, because, uh, just think about how fickle our heart is and how quickly it can turn 180 degrees in a moment's notice. And that begins to help us understand why the Bible says our heart is incurably sick. Just like your body is incurably sick. And by that we mean you get the victory over one sickness, you enjoy some health, and then you're going to be attacked again. It's just part of it. We believe in divine health. We lay hands on the sick. We see the miraculous. But we also know we have to prepare for things to go awry. It's just part of life. So let's look at these bullet points here. Bad news can quickly cast our heart into sorrow. We've all experienced that. Just, and I don't, I don't want to elaborate upon it because I don't have time. But all of us have had a moment where we were joyful, something was exciting, then we got one ounce of bad news and it cast our heart down. Yeah. That's, how, that's one of the ways the heart is incurably sick. It's always going to be able to be knocked down with the right news. An insult can quickly redirect our heart into anger. Not every insult, the right insult. The insult that would hit your heart in the right place. Just like to hear about President so-and-so and, um, some, or some governor in the state of some state in India, if he died today, it would not even register. You wouldn't even know how to pronounce the name, much less know where the state is, so you wouldn't care. But if our governor were to be killed tomorrow, it would maybe impact a lot of us because we know who he is and we respect him. Likewise, if a president overseas died, Macron, if Macron died, nobody would care. Oh, but if Joe Biden died, President Joe Biden, whether you like him or not, that would be very impactful. So it's not just any news. It's news that hits you in the right place. Same with the insult. Not just any insult will do you wrong because you don't care about every insult. But the devil has studied you for a long time, and he knows what insult will make you fall apart. It may not be a mama joke. A mama joke may not insult you, but God knows the devil will find a joke or an insult that will drop you into anger. Insults and reproaches can also quickly break our heart. Not just an insult, but a reproach. And this shifts you from anger just to a broken heart. Somebody just beat you down, criticize you. You don't push back in anger. You just fall apart, bullied. And injustice can cause us to quickly boil up with rage. Not just any injustice, but an injustice that's important to you. Because right now, every day, in every state, in every city, injustices are being committed, but nobody's fighting over all of them. Right. We're not even upset about the same stuff we were upset about two years ago when we burned our cities to the ground. Same stuff is still happening in cities around the country. We're not burning cities down over it. So what was so special about two years ago? That's how desperately wicked and curably sick the heart is. All right. Good news can pull our hearts into rejoicing. That's, that's good. Good news can pull our hearts up. A good report can fatten the bones and make you excited. Even uh, your spouse or your kids or maybe your employee will come in and say, I got good news and bad news. Which do you want first? Because we know bad news can cast you down and good news can pull you up. I always want bad news first. Give me the bad news. Just so I can just know first. Yeah. And then usually we troubleshoot the bad news. I don't care about the good news because we troubleshoot the bad news and that's good news. Yeah. Right? right? Don't run away from bad news. Yeah. Run face first into it. Right. Deal with it. Absolutely. Putting your head in the sand like an ostrich does not make the bad news go away. It exposes your rump to the lion. Yeah. That's what sticking your head in the sand does. The loss of a loved one can cast into deep depression. Gossip can turn a heart against a hero. Gossip, you can quickly 
learn to hate a hero just by hearing gossip, not even truth, just gossip. That's how fickle the heart is. You can respect somebody, but hear one nugget of gossip on some little social media page and cast your heart into a hatred or a disrespect for your hero. It's also why we have the American proverb that says, never meet your heroes. Because you have a hero because you see them through the lens of television or through a book or an argus, a magazine or a movie or a football game. And if you ever meet them, you'd realize they were just as human as you. And so it's a true adage, never meet your heroes because they won't be your heroes anymore. It's part of it. Discouragement can be turned to faith very quickly if you want to. Betrayal can wound your heart. Any traumatic event can break the heart. These are all examples we experience in our life as human beings on the blessed side of Calvary. And because we all can relate to these experiences, we can begin to understand why the Bible would describe our heart as desperately wicked and curably sick. In any one of these events, we go from one position or one state to another one with just a word. Your mama died. You go from excited to... go. Folks have had to cancel vacations because a loved one died and they were so excited to have a whole year of savings and planning going towards a vacation and then daddy died and instantly we don't care about the vacation. We don't care about losing the deposit. We don't care. We're in sorrow. We're in sackcloth. We're in mourning. We have to rally the troops and gather the family to take care of daddy's funeral and comfort those that mourn. Instantly, one word changes our heart. That's how fickle and incurable the heart is. And you can't change it. It's the way it's designed to operate. All we can do is take the word of God and honor God anytime that heart wants to switch one way or the other. And instantly canceling your vacation because a loved one died, there's nothing wrong with that. That's honorable. But I want you to see the point of it is that your whole faith, your whole family, the whole locomotion that is your family and life is marching towards a cruise to the Bahamas. And then you get word that your sister was killed in a car accident. And your heart says, I could never get on that ship. It's not right. It's dishonorable. And you don't, even the thought of getting on the cruise ship that you saved up for makes you sick at your stomach. But your neighbor who's going on the cruise with you who didn't know your sister doesn't care a bit. Hate it for you. I'm getting on that boat because they didn't know your sister. We understand this. This is how fickle and weird the heart is. And yet God says, in that thing, that produces faith that pleases me. Why would you give me a discombobulated, broke down, jack leg, three cylinder engine and ask me to change the world with it. And the Lord says, I'm glad you asked because you have to invoke me every day to do it. (laughs) It's not like he sunk within our soul, the nuclear engine in a trident submarine. No, no. He gave us some little hillbilly redneck three cycle engine on a moped. And he said, now change the world with that. And you're like, man, (laughs) yeah. And that was you after a good faith meeting. Why is our heart described as incurably sick? Because it will need constant attention, constant maintenance, and care as long as we are in the earth. We can never lower our guard on our heart. So let's look at the broken heart. The broken heart is a phenomenon all humans are acquainted with in both old and new covenants. Psalm 109.22 says, For I am poor and needy, my heart is wounded within me. Nobody would ever call David a sissy. What made him strong is that he was able to confess and write down, I messed up. I hurt. Many of his Psalms, he starts off broken, hurt, sorrowful, weird, depressed. And by the end of it, he's ready to go to war and kill half a civilization. 
And he did it within 15 verses. I mean, something about writing that song made him ready to get up and go do something for God again. If he can fix it in 15 lines of scripture, I don't know why it takes us 15 years because he didn't have the Holy Spirit like we do. Being born again does not prevent broken hearts. Please hear me. So drop your cheap faith, that hollow, shallow, temperamental confession that says, oh, I believe I don't receive. I don't believe I receive it. I, I can't be broken. I can't. No, no, you're not a human being. Being born again does not prevent broken hearts. Your hearts can be broken because you love, because you value, because you treasure. And the Bible tells us that even God's heart was broken, even the Lord Jesus Christ, that he wept and he was sad and sorrowful. The scriptures tell us there's a time to weep and a time to cry and a time to be sorrowful. Then there's a time to mourn and a time to dance and be shouting and, and helpful. That's the, that's the gospel. I can't tell you how many word of faith leaders I have heard say, crying's not faith. Weeping's not faith. Hogwash. You're an idiot. You've taken your faith doctrine too far into a ditch and you haven't balanced it out with other scriptures. So you mean to tell me then the whole job of the Holy Spirit being comforter is, is, is what? It's illicit? If sorrow's not faith, then the Holy Ghost would never show up to grieve the, or help those that grieve. But he's called the comforter. So if, if us crying and us weeping and mourning is sin, the Holy Spirit would never show up except to repent, cause us to repent, to put us into more sorrow. I'm telling you, some of our faith leaders, I think, Lord of mercy, you are stuck in a rut. You are a broken record. Have you not moved on with what Peter calls present truth? There's a time to mourn, and you should mourn when you're broken, but you don't stay there. There's where the faith kicks in. If that were the case, there would be no reason for God to reveal himself as a comforter. If being born again prevents broken hearts, why would we need a comforter? And yet that's the, one, that's the first thing Jesus said about the Holy Spirit, the comforter. The psalmist testified to God's comforting nature. The Lord gathered together the outcasts of Israel. He healeth the broken in heart. And he binds up all their griefs. It's a good confession. Lord, you heal my broken heart and you bind up all my wounds, all my griefs, all my pains, all my sorrows. He can do it if you'll let him. He can do it, but you have to let him. Isaiah prophesied that the first effect of the gospel and one of the primary assignments of Christ was to heal the brokenhearted. So if, <laughs> if we're not supposed to ever have a broken heart, then Christ has an illegal job. Some of us are old school faith people. I count myself there. We were taught crying is not faith. Mourning for the loss of a loved one is not faith. I'm not, I, I just didn't weep for my wife when she passed away. There's no faith in it. You have lost your mind. You have calloused your heart. You are probably a hard human being. I really question how soft your heart is towards God's people. You can't even weep over the passing of your spouse. Did you not love them? Did you hate them? My wife didn't cry when her daddy died, but he wasn't ever a daddy. She even asked me, is it wrong that I have, I'm not sad that my daddy's gone? I said, honey, you never knew your daddy. Maybe that's why you don't cry when your loved one passes away. You never knew him. But to call it not faith, to cry, in that, in that sliver of doctrine, you're a moron. And you've never really pastored people through their pain. Nor have you ever really done a funeral to recognize the Spirit of God when it rolls in to comfort and to allow people to mourn and wail with the Holy Ghost anointing to get it out of your system and invoke this Greek word catharsis to get it out and to purge and say, oh, oh, it purged me. I just so, I feel good now. I'm sad, but not like I was. I wept, but not as those who have no hope. 
So why would the Holy Spirit be a comforter if sorrow was a sin? Why would Christ be anointed to heal the brokenhearted if being brokenhearted is a sin? Isaiah 61.1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. The word sent means to be an apostle. So he's an apostle of binding broken hearts. So let me ask you, because some of us maybe today, I don't know, maybe we're dealing with a broken heart. How long is it going to stay broken? If you'll receive the Christ that's sent, his first job, he says, after he preaches, is to fix broken hearts. So at some point, you have to let Jesus Christ in to your heart. Not that you're not saved, but let him into your heart so he can begin to mend what is broken. To mend the, the pain of betrayal, the pain of shame, the pain of failure, whatever it is. At some point, you've got to let Christ back in. You ran him off so you could sulk. But at some point, you've got to let him back in so he can begin to fix that thing. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Jesus was in the habit of preaching this verse everywhere he went. It appears to have been his primary text scripture when he preached in synagogues for the first time. He preached that everywhere he went. That was his confession. I'm anointed to heal broken hearts. I'm anointed to heal broken hearts. But I want us to also see this is one of the reasons the Bible calls the heart desperately wicked and curably sick. Because we can be awesome today have an awesome service, excited our football team one yesterday, and then get horrible news tomorrow and cast into a downward spiral. I know Eddie's still sulking over the Titans losing. I think really this Sunday school is for Eddie. We were texting about you last night, Eddie. Somebody said, Everybody, anybody check on Brother Eddie? Really, it did happen. That's why I text you. You never replied to me. I'm sure Miss Renee was holding you, comforting you. You get no comfort? Let Jesus in, Eddie. Let <laughs> Jesus in. <laughs> oh, football joking aside. Uh, football's lost one thing. Loss of a loved one is something else altogether. Amen. Look at 2 Corinthians 1. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. We need comfort because our hearts can be broken who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. So another confirmation that the heart is broken on a regular basis and we need to get into the habit of receiving the comfort of God. God can fortify us. Now what's awesome, or let's talk about this a little bit. Some cultures teach that men should have this tough external facade and we just can't be weak. But needing God is not being weak. And the awesome thing is being able to be broken at sorrowful things and then turn to God makes you stronger than anybody else. Because think about the man. Typically, it's the man. It's the, the machismo, the macho aspect of man. I don't cry. We're tough. I feel no pain. That's a lie. You're a human being. Unless you've just calloused your heart, turned it to a table of stone, you hurt. But your culture has lied to you and you've put on this facade. So you've never had to seek Jesus Christ for the comfort, the balm of Gilead, as Jeremiah calls it, so that you don't even know what to do in time of sorrow. So you just keep bottling it up and bottling it up and acting so tough. And on the inside, you are paper thin and as brittle as a Catholic wafer. And at some point, you're going to be broken into a thousand pieces, and you're never going to have learned how to get the Holy Ghost to strengthen you and mend you together. And you may just quit and disappear altogether. 
The strong man is the man who's not afraid to weep because mama died or grandmama died or his best friend was killed or get emotional at a military commercial or even a, uh, a movie that has a strong emotional pull. You're supposed to have these emotions. Jesus Christ wept. David wept. And yet they let God mend their hearts back together. So when you get used to that, that expansion, contraction of broken and repaired and broken and repaired, you're not afraid of the future. Because no matter what hell strikes, no matter what hammer hits, blast me into a thousand pieces. I have proven my God knows how to repair me over and over and over again. And you can hit me, devil, but we'll just re-coagulate over here and God will fix us even better. Yeah. Or just be this tough, macho man. And on the inside, you're weeping like a baby because your mother never held you. I'd much rather be able to weep openly hurt openly, get mad openly, and they let God fix me openly. Yes, Amen. Then you got no fear of nothing because God's walked you through everything. Amen. Even the New Testament believers need their hearts, not their spirit, man, comforted from time to time. Ephesians 6.22, Paul said, and that he, uh, Tukikas, or Tychicus, it's Greek pronounced it Tukikas, Tukikas might comfort your hearts. Ephesians, this is Paul's most mature church. They needed comfort. And it came from another apostle. They needed their hearts comforted. Paul's most mature church needed comfort. Maybe they were under persecution. Colossians 4.8, that he, Tychicus, might know your estate and comfort your hearts. Apparently, this was Paul's go-to guy. Paul was really good at breaking things in discipline. And then I guess Tychicus, was a, he was like a son of consolation like Barnabas. He was good for coming in there and encouraging everybody and comforting them. So, all right, Tychicus, I'm leaving. They're going to need you about a month after I'm gone. So you just go ahead wherever you're at, finish it up, get over there and clean up my mess for me. <laughs> Remember, even Peter said there in the end of Peter, he said, that Paul, he says some hard things that are difficult to hear, but we still love him. <laughs> 2 Thessalonians, now our Lord Jesus Christ himself comforts your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. New Testament believers need their hearts comforted. That proves our heart is incurable. Anytime you turn to that verse, it's going to want to comfort your heart. Any given day, you can start off good or bad, and by the end of the day, be in a different position in your heart. It's just fickle. The heart is incurably fickle. What we try to do as we mature is tone down the vacillation. Like the old pendulum on a clock, we want to try to tone it down. We don't want it to swing faster. We don't want to fix things faster. We want to just chill it out so that in our vacillations, in all of our emotions, we're just more like this. Some folks, they swing out here for so long, they swing back and it just rushes. And We want to just be stable right down the middle as best we can. Whether due to hardships, loss, betrayal, stress, or calamity, the heart requires frequent comforting. It is impossible to live life without needing comfort or consolation. And like I said, this does not make you weak, though your culture, wherever you're from, may teach you this is weak. Southerners, Southern men are supposed to be harsh, hard. We're farmers, you know, we're Southerners. The South will rise again. We don't hurt, except for when grandma wears us out, the paddle. But we held those tears, and even little boys try to hold their tears in. They don't want to cry, but that's not natural. We have a heart. We have nerve endings. We feel pain. I think it may be the sin nature that says, I don't hurt because if I hurt, then I would need God. And that's arrogance. 
It's Christ denial. To deny the help of Christ? I can fix this on my own. I'm not going to cry at this funeral. I can deny Christ. See how that goes for you. Or how about invite him to come in and help you and learn another aspect of your God called the comforter, the consolator. There's an old black Pentecostal song about he's a great consolator. He consolated me. I like it. I can hear uh, Donnie McClurkin singing it right now in my head. He's a great consolator. He consolated me. Why not let him console you? Why be tough? Why? Because your daddy was an idiot? Is that why you want to be tough? You want to be like your moron dad? Daddy said, we don't cry. Your dad's a moron. Well, he's dead. Proof enough. We don't want to be like daddy. We want to be like our father in heaven. <laughs> we can obtain comfort from several sources, from one another. That's why we open our hearts to each other. The word of God, we receive comfort from prayer or even self-edification. Remember, David said, why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God. All of this is further evidence that our heart is incurably sick and will require constant maintenance and attention, but such is life. A bunch of other scriptures there to look at in your own time. Let's look at other heart problems that prove the point that we cannot trust our hearts and we're going to need God's help for our heart to run smooth that it might produce the faith necessary to please God. Remember, faith is of the heart, but the heart is incurably sick. But without faith, it's impossible to please God. So God wants me to do the impossible with something that's incurable. This sounds like a bad, raw deal. Yes, it's very raw. And that's why you say, Lord Jesus, help. Lord Jesus, help. God wants us to do the impossible using the only tool we have, which is incurable. And that's why we need God. Our hearts are dynamic and they are constantly being adjusted by our environs. We have seen that they are easily programmed and influenced they produce whatever is written upon them. This is why we are careful what we write upon the table of our heart. Proverbs 3, 3 says, write them, that is mercy and truth from the previous part of the verse, write them upon the table of your heart. What if you don't write mercy and truth there? Then you'll produce whatever's written on your table. Proverbs 7, 3, write them, the commandments and the law upon the table of thine heart. So here's two commandments. We write the law, we write commandments, we write mercy, we write truth. Those being written upon our heart will produce a different life for us. But what if those aren't written on the table of your heart? Your heart, excuse me, your life is a product of whatever's written there. So you, it's, it's a real simple science experiment. Just look at the quality of your life and you can see what you've allowed to be written there or to stay written there. Any change in your life will be a byproduct of what you've changed upon the table of your heart. If you start writing joy upon the table of your heart, through prayer, through confession, through study, through decisions, you'll produce more joy in your life. It really is the old WYSIWYG. What you see is what you get, or garbage in, gigo, garbage in, garbage out. It's programming code. It is the old slide projector. If you remember the old slides, these young kids don't know what a slide projector is. You had a light cast through a, an aperture, and you put a slide, which was a see-through picture, and the light wasn't to blame. It only shone through what was there on the little slide picture and projected it up there. Your life is a byproduct of what's on that picture. And if you don't like your life, change that picture. If you don't like your financial situation, change the picture. If you don't like your health, change the picture. The light, though, is not to blame. God's life is not to blame. God's word is not to blame. We are to blame. And you can change it. 
you want to. If you want to. Or I should say want to enough. The right answer is I want to. The honest answer is it's probably not worth my effort. Jeremiah 17, 1. The sin of Judah is written with the pen of iron and with the point of a diamond. It is engraven upon the table of their heart. You can get your life to where your heart is so hard, you inscribe your sin upon this hard table. You don't engrave on fleshy tables of the heart. You can't engrave on flesh. You have to tattoo it. You can engrave and inscribe only on hard objects, metal, stone. And you can get to a place where your, your heart is so hard that your sin is permanently engraved on the table of your heart, and you just won't change. New Testament would call that having your conscience seared. We don't want to get there. Manipulators, politicians, and propagandists have learned how to write things upon the hearts of the general populace, thereby stealing their hearts for selfish gain and the people's misfortune. Hopefully one of the things we've seen through these lessons is how propaganda, how media, how social media works to steal our hearts. If they understand, probably not like we do now, but they understand by general social sciences that you can change people through propaganda. Hopefully you've recognized how we've been played as a nation the last 10 or 15, 20, 30 years, how your faith can be harnessed for God or harnessed for the devil. Hopefully you can recognize maybe where your culture is pimping you like a bunch of cheap whores and reject that and commit your life to Christ again. Politicians, manipulators, propagandists have learned how to write these things upon the tables of people's hearts because they know whatever I write on their heart is what they'll reproduce. Never happens overnight. Never happens overnight. It takes time. It takes time. It takes time. I'd like to talk more on it, but I got to move through this. Guard your heart because people will write things when you won't. They'll write things on your heart. Just as a side note, I was reading an article yesterday. I, I, I study the headlines of Yahoo News, and I have for about 10 years because Yahoo News is produced by 20-somethings. And to watch their articles, you see the standard shifting. And I can remember, just I don't even read all of the articles, just read the headlines, just scroll through the headlines, because it's, it's funny to watch the irony and the perversion, the hypocrisy out of this very woke leftist L.A. Published publication. Before the Oberfeld decision with gay marriage, all the articles on Yahoo were about gays and their rights and gays and their rights and gays make wonderful parents and gays. And they would also salt it with horrible heterosexual stories, horrible heterosexual stories, abusive heterosexual parents. And you could see the propaganda. We're we're ground softening to get the people's general heart ready to be moved and bumped over one to this Supreme Court decision. And I said in my heart watching these stories, knowing the Supreme Court decision was coming up, as soon as they pass that, we're going to shift to something else, probably transgenderism. Sure enough, Oberfell hadn't even come down, and I started seeing stories about transgenders and transgenders and transgenders and transgenders. And they, then they perfectly started running stories of pastors whose children had transitioned to opposite sex. And I said, this is all propaganda. Using all these stories, all these stories, all these stories. And you see them constantly trying to make things mainstream. And this Oberfell six or seven years ago now. So now they move beyond the transgender thing because that's just accepted. And now it's, of course, transgender rights not just accepting it, but now even to watch the hysteria over the transgender swimmer and how, wait, you you have a problem with a transgender swimmer? She's breaking all sorts of records. 
you have a problem with this? So the new, newest thing I just saw that I said, mm, this is what Dr. Barclay talked about. This is what Pastor Kerry Gordon talked about. I saw an article saying, pardon my family's home culture, that the new Bubba Fett TV show finally writes some wrongs and they're making cyborgs acceptable. And I went, what? So I said, this has this got to be parody. So I read the article about this, this Bubble Fett TV show and how, uh, and the old Star Wars, because, you know, it was so racist, Marxist, sexist, homophobic. They, you only got cyborg parts if you had to because something bad was done to you. Your hand got cut off and nobody wanted that. Oh, it was so anti-whatever. They haven't made up the term yet. They'll make up something. So, but finally, Bubba Fett presents cyborg parts as cool, and that's good. And the article basically concluded because there's going to come a time when we're going to have cyborg parts. So how the article concluded, and I thought, this person is serious, and they're ground softening for body modification to make it mainstream. We're not talking about gay rights anymore. That thing's settled forever. We're not talking gay adoption anymore. That's settled forever. We're not talking transgender. That's settled forever. We've moved on to the new thing now because if they can write it upon the tables of our hearts, and you think it's weird. You think, no, we're never going to accept cyborg parts. I'm telling you, I've watched this pattern for a decade. It's true. It's accurate. If they're talking about cyborg parts and how we can modify the human experience, it'll be the next thing. Because America's a freak show and humanity's lost. But to get that out there and say, Bubba Fett is doing Americans a good service by mainstreaming cyborg parts. No, thank you. Propagandists know how to write things upon our hearts to manipulate us. They'll do it for their own selfish gain and people's misfortune. 2 Samuel 15, 6. And on this manner, smooth talking and flattery, did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. I've taught that story a lot. I just want you to see your heart can be stolen away from anything important to you. Your heart can be stolen away from anything important to you if you don't guard it. For this reason, Solomon offers a very strong warning. Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. That's the NIV. NLT says, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. If you don't like your life, look at what's in your heart. Your heart is the reason your life is the way that it is. I don't care where you were born or to whom you were born. Your heart is the reason your life is the way it is today. You can't blame anything else. You can't blame 1960s politicians. Your heart is what it is. is your life is what it is based on what your heart is. Amen? If that's not true, then God's a liar. You don't have to guard something that is secured and established. The heart is generally neither secure nor established. We must post a constant guard over it and regularly check its internal gauges and meters for system health, adjusting, praying, rebuking, and correcting unbiblical thoughts, emotions, desires as they arise. Let's move quickly now. Proverbs 23, 19 says, Hear thou, my son, and be wise, and guide your heart in the way. The Bible says you guide your heart. Don't let your heart guide you. You guide your heart. Don't let your heart guide you. You guide your heart. This verse is very clear. We are commanded to guide our heart, not allow it to guide us. How many Christians, contrary to the Bible, follow their heart? We must guide our heart in the way of God's word. Proverbs 28, 26 says, He that trusts in his own heart is a fool, but whosoever walketh wisely, he shall be delivered. 
I also saw this weekend a Samsung commercial was pulled out of Singapore because it showed a Muslim woman encouraging her transgender son to listen to his heart via the new Samsung watch and app. So it stirred up Singapore's heavy Muslim population. Muslims do not promote transgenderism. And so for them to purposely show a Malaysian Muslim woman encouraging her transgender son to listen to his heart, follow your heart. Samsung got into so much trouble, they pulled it down before it could even seen very much. There's all sorts of apologies online. And I thought, that's what I'm preaching tomorrow. Don't listen to your heart. But the Muslim telling the transgender, listen to your heart. And of course, Christians have the same demonic doctrine. Listen to your heart. Look at Ecclesiastes 11.9. Listen carefully. Wait to the punchline at the end. Rejoice, young people. This is Solomon after he messed everything up. Rejoice, young people, during your childhood. And let your heart be pleasant during the days of your manhood, your young manhood. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you into judgment for all these things. <laughs> Felt like we had permission there. Yes, I'm going to follow the impulses of my heart. Yeah, and then know God will judge you. You built me up, Solomon, just to strike me down. He said, follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you into judgment for all these things. These three verses inform us that we don't let our heart guide us. We guide it. Contrary to many modern love ballads and Samsung commercials, the heart cannot be trusted. If we follow the whims of our heart, God will bring us into judgment. Trust God's word, not your heart. Those that follow their heart will have pain-filled, unstable lives. Hebrews 3.12, Take heed, brethren, lest there be any, uh, in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Even Paul in the New Testament warns believers that we have the ability to develop an evil heart of unbelief. We might add that the same passage says, Harden not your heart, which means the born-again New Testament believer can harden their heart. Another proof that the heart is desperately wicked and curably sick. It can be soft today and hardened tomorrow. It can love a good rebuke today and then despise the same correction a week from now. That's how fickle the heart is. Before an apostate departs from God, they must first develop an evil heart. This is a process, and it can only begin when there is no guard set over the heart. Little by little, their thoughts drift away from God, their affections attach to something else, and their will desires some other God. Why do people leave God? To chase the thing their hearts desire. We put a guard. Remember, Demas has forsaken me, Second uh, Timothy chapter 4. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. The word love there is agapeo. It's the God kind of love, love that makes a sacrifice. He could have agapeoed God or agapeoed the world. He chose to agapeo the world, and therefore he left Paul. He forsook him. How about the impure heart? The heart can produce great uncleanness. Proverbs 20 says, Who can say, I have made my heart clean? I am pure from sin. Jeremiah 4.14, O Jerusalem, cleanse your heart that you may be saved. How long will you harbor evil thoughts? Ezekiel 16.30, What a sick heart you have, says the sovereign Lord, to do such things as these, acting like a shameless prostitute. He indicted a whole nation. What a sick heart you have. Matthew 59, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. Acts 5, 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Consider that. 
New Testament church, tongue talkers, miracle signs and wonders everywhere. And yet Satan still had access to fill a husband and wife, a generous, benevolent family, fill their hearts. The devil still had access to fill their hearts with stuff. How did it happen? They didn't cast down their thoughts. They didn't cast down their wants. And let me tell you real quick how this works. An evil spirit will come upon a person with fiery darts first. And if they don't cast down those darts like you're trained to, that demon moves closer. And it's no longer a dart. Now it's this aroma. It's a spirit. It's a vapor. It's a cloud. It's a it's spirit. And that spirit ministers to them constantly, getting them to think upon it, eliciting emotions on it, eliciting them strong, impulsive desires until that person absorbs it and claims it as their own. And after that happens, that devil can depart because they have now made supernaturally a disciple out of that believer and gotten them to reject their God or lust after someone who's not their spouse or want to embezzle money or commit crime. And once the, the, the devil, that spirit has, has absorbed or, or caused that person to absorb its essence and take upon it for themselves, it can leave. Its job is done. Let me say something very homophobic. This is how homosexuals are made. Because that spirit comes upon a person, a child, even an adult. The transgender swimmer didn't recognize he was transgender until two years ago. I'm sorry, dude, you're 22 years old. You hadn't sorted this thing out before you were 20. You're just making this stuff up or you got a demon. And that spirit rests upon a person and gives them homosexual thoughts till they begin to wonder, am I gay? I can't stop thinking about it. Am I gay? No, you're not gay. Just cast that stuff down. Until all of a sudden, because they're not taught better, because now we can't do reparative therapy, they absorb those thoughts and claim them as their own. Well, this is just how I am. This is just the way I think. And before long, they think, well, I wonder if I should try. Well, I think if I am. And nowadays, everybody around them encourages them to just come out and embrace who you are. But it's not who you are. It's who a demon taught you to be, talking to you, buffeting you, harassing you, tormenting you, till you consented. And then it left you alone and gave you peace. But it didn't give you peace. It gave you the keys to Pandora's box. And now you're about to unlock a whole world of hell. Except now our culture's been taught to embrace that as natural. There's nothing natural about it. When your rear end prolapses and you have to have corrective therapies and wear diapers as a grown man because you defecate yourself and you bleed out your rectum, there's nothing natural about that. And even if it was evolutionary, evolution would have thinned it out. Because if you didn't know, gays don't reproduce. Feces and semen don't make babies. Evolution solved that real quick. It's a demon. And I hurt for those people who've been lied to. And this speech right here is called hate speech. Amen. See if that gets taken down off of YouTube. What? What? James 4, 8. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Am I gay or not? No, you're not gay. You're not a lesbian. It's a demon. Tell it to shut up. Good Lord, this is not hard. This New Testament verses, verse reveals to us that Christians can have impure and unstable hearts. This verse commands us to purify our hearts. What makes our hearts impure? Indecisiveness, inconsistency. They are described as impurities. Would you follow someone who is impure and inconsistent? No. So, in conclusion, in short, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked and incurably sick because it is dynamic and alive. It can be broken, wounded, defiled, cleansed, healed, stolen, or given away all before lunch on any given day. 
May we guard it and glorify God with the faith it produces. Amen.